This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Animal trafficking. More early 60s horror gold. Satis vexations. And Michael Scott. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with both guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a buck. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, look, in addition to miniatures, Robin, we've got plastic animals. We got a little plastic lion. We got some plastic uh, tigers and monkeys. It's as though we've raided our little brother's room for extra stuff for the gaming hut because beloved Patreon backer Kevin L. Nault has asked us, how would you make a game based on international animal trafficking? Robin, I have, bizarrely enough, a couple of ideas on this topic, but I am going to begin by asking you how you would do it. Right. Well, uh, we can't, unfortunately, look at the vast corpus of animal trafficking-related thrillers and genre material because, uh, although it's a, a crime mm-hmm. and one that, in which people get killed, uh, it is not one of which there is a, a lot of media treatment. So we're sort of on our own there. So if we want to look at the beginning edge of that wedge, the most dramatic thing is armed poaching. Uh, which takes place in uh, Africa with uh, large animals and often is about feeding the endangered species trade, which is in some cases uh, live animals for collectors. And in a lot of cases, it is animal parts for use in Chinese traditional um, medicine. And so this is a, unfortunately, a, a real thing that happens. You want to focus on the evil rich person aspect of it, I think, rather than the fact that it's a Chinese cultural practice specifically, but it's... uh, (laughs) Well, fortunately, China also has no shortage of evil rich people. Exactly. There's a a real benefit to us uh, in terms of thematic unity there. Right. And of course, the the, uh, Chinese uh, government, for all of its uh, long list of faults, officially clamps down on that, well, of course, unofficially being run by evil rich people. Yeah. And it is the, uh, not the evil uh, rich people who uh, wind up suffering the most in this trade, whether it is game wardens or the actual uh, armed uh, people doing the poaching. They are poor, generally, and are being exploited. And uh, often the game wardens are uh, killed. So that's got action in it. It's got guns. It's also deeply uh, unpleasant and kind of offensive. And super depressing. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think you would want to have African characters spearheading the the fight against that. As indeed they do, pretty much. As indeed they do. They're the ones taking the brunt. So it's it's uh, that's definitely uh, part of it. But how to make that into a, a scenario in a role-playing game context is... Uh, it's kind of tricky. Therefore, that's why I think you don't see a lot of kind of media treatment of it because it's not exciting and fun escapist uh, fare. It's, uh, uh, as you point out, something that's uh, that's deeply depressing. I think you could do it as a scenario, right? If it's a Knights Black Agents adventure and you're tracking these Chinese vampires who want blood from all kinds of exotic animals. And so they've 
tapped into, or they just want money. And so they've tapped into the trade in rhino horn. And so you've gone down there to set a trap and lure one of them into the jungle. And so it becomes a, a hunter, hunter becomes the hunted type situation. That could be kind of fun. But the trouble is once you've done one rhino hunt scenario, they're all pretty much the same. So it's, it's pretty samey, samey. Even if you're playing the, the, the brave, uh, rangers in Tanzania or Kenya or wherever fighting off, uh, bad poachers, one day is mostly like another. It's not like cops see a whole bunch of different crimes. Game wardens see pretty much the one crime. And so there's, uh, there's a, a repetition to it. So as one adventure in a campaign, I think it's fairly easy to come up with, with cool things as a whole campaign based on it. That's a little bit tough. Uh, the thing that occurred to me of what to do with international animal trafficking, uh, and I guess you could include, or I'm going to include intranational animal tracking, although there's some international aspect to it as well, is after watching Tiger King way back in the earliest days of the pandemic, you remember that, Robin, nine years ago, whatever that was, <laughs> watching yeah. that show was such an unknown army's experience it was literally just watching a campaign that no one knew they were playing. All the characters are insane. They've got bizarre sexual fetishes tied up in these things. There's uh gun trades and weird politics and all kinds of stuff that just felt very much like an unknown armies campaign. And so my thought was you make the animal trafficking, a thing that you have to do. And you, again, not poaching because that's disgusting. Uh, not that big cat trading in America is not also a little bit disgusting, but you make that a thing that, that rival sorceress groups are doing, uh, because owning lions or tigers gives you magical mana and, uh, builds you up in the unknown armies esque sort of universe. And that led me ineluctably to thinking about the circus of Dr. Lau, the great novel and okay movie, uh, in which a circus that is full of fantasy animals travels around and op opens people's eyes to their own interior um, uh, condition. And the notion that if there's a good circus that does this, there's got to be evil circuses and, and Dr. Antles and uh, Tiger Kings that are also trafficking in manticores. And so the notion of a game called Manticore King sort of jumped into my mind, but I have not yet figured out um, how I would make that game. And I was hoping, Robin, that in the guise of answering Kevin L. Nault's question, you could give me some ideas. Well, I, I think this sort of keys into uh, also zoos as a possible uh, nexus of intrigue in right. yep. the Yellow King uh, role-playing game's uh, aftermath uh, sequence. The Bronx Park Zoological Society is a center for experimentation and uh, creating mutant hybrids. And so you could have that sort of, uh, you know, cryptid hunting. And uh, we know from real animal trafficking, the most trafficked animals are actually reptiles and amphibians mm -hmm. uh, because they're small enough to be transported live. Uh, there are extremely rare ones and they sort of fly below uh, the radar of, uh, you know, people who hunt and kill elephants for their ivory. Uh, and it's easier to uh, conduct that covert trade. And when you uh, read about that, you discover that a lot of zoos are bent. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like, it's just like museums, right? That someone shows up and they say, I've got a Rembrandt. And they say, do you promise you didn't steal it? I pinky swear. Well, that's good enough for us. And up goes the Rembrandt on the wall. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of uh, chicanery uh, behind the scenes at, at different zoos, especially in the in the reptile and amphibian house. And so that is something that you could feed into that. You could have sort of a, a criminal network of people who are connected to each other and whether, you know, they are trying to get the Abingdon Island giant tortoise in order to extract the DNA that they need to create tortoise people at the Bronx Park Zoological Society, or it is perhaps some sort of crime that figures in a murder investigation, right? So mm -hmm. someone was killed over a chameleon deal gone bad. Right, or their stock of Komodo dragon eggs or something. Yeah, and so that's either the actual main thread in a murder case, or it's an interesting you know, sidetrack that takes you down uh, something. And again, as you suggest that in a world where mythical animals or cryptids exist, this of course would be a trade as well. And I think uh, you would more likely even see it in zoos than in circuses uh, because even zoos are now starting to kind of phase out. And a lot of them are getting rid of some of uh, their animals. The Metro zoo uh, here in Toronto, for example, has decided that it, it can no longer care for elephants. So it 
sold off its elephants. And there's a definitely a trade between different zoos and things. So if we imagine a, uh, a sort of an urban fantasy world where people know that mythical animals exist, and then, you know, drug kings and stuff would own them. This The, the idea of owning particular uh, animals for their mystical properties would explain perhaps why Pablo Escobar uh, owned a bunch of hippos that mm-hmm. have found out that uh, hippos have discovered also, that Colombia is ideal hippo habitat. And that's a, he, he may also have read that they eat more people than any other animal and said, well, I've got a lot of people that need eaten. Sure. If you want to fun ruin it with it, mere people being eaten <laughs> by hippos instead of the magical properties of hippos going back to ancient Egypt. It's not an either or uh, the magical properties. Of the hippos might be fed by turning them into hippo cannibals. There we go. Good save. Ken. That's how you wake them up. Right. You tie into Amit, the eater of the dead. You can channel uh, the Egyptian gods. Yeah. And I'm sure the hippos would argue they're not cannibals if it's just people they're eating. You know, they they don't eat other hippos. Well, fortunately, they're arguing it in their weird hippo language, so I don't have to pay attention to it. Right. So I think this gets us to the idea of an international underground uh, where both crooked zoos and experimental labs and drug kings are all selling either uh, mystical animals, outwardly normal, but magical hippos that um, provide you uh, all of these extra access to uh, either Egyptian magic or, you know, there are all sorts of different magical traditions that invoke animals. Um, And uh, this gets you into sort of more of a setting rather than a one-off murder mystery or uh, nice black agents opening sequence. And so uh, I guess the, the notion there is you play the good zoo or the good collector who is trying to, you know, uh, you've inherited the the circus from your great uncle, Dr. Lau, or are you working for like um, Bigfoot trying to break it up? And Bigfoot's like, no animals should ever be caught up. And Bigfoot's a radical uh, animal liberation front guy. But uh, Bigfoot also, he, he's got you uh, either maybe Bigfoot is forcing you to, to, to do his bidding, his radical bidding, or maybe you're on team Bigfoot. And so he's sending you out to infiltrate and disrupt this this big trade in in mystically powerful animals um yeah and either and one I think of those be, i think would be fun the, the animal rescue center comes into it here that you're you have a sanctuary where you know your your manticores and your magical hippos can all uh, frolic together in peace and harmony uh run by bigfoot who gives you your assignments and then you have mm-hmm. to go and so scenario one is you know you do your uh, anti-poaching scenario, but with a mystical beast of some kind. So it's not quite so harsh. And the next one is you're rescuing the hippos from, uh, the, the heir to Pablo Escobar and so forth. And so I, I don't think you, and you know, next time, oh, it's the evil, uh, Cronenberg S lab that has, uh, captured the, uh, uh, three eyed people in order to experiment on them. And then you uh, go there and, uh, in, in aftermath, you could literally be trying to go around and rescue all the creatures that have been uh, tormented by various offshoots of the Bronx Park Zoological Society and sort of rescue them and figure out what to do with them. And then later, of course, there'll be a scenario where there's a raid. The forces come after your sanctuary and uh, kidnap your talking monkey or whatever it is, and then you have to recover them. Right. Or you maybe discover that one of the animals you rescued because they are intelligent is actually working for the, the Anubis or, or Wapawat or one of the mean Egyptian gods. And they're trying to uh, convert uh, your animal refuge into uh, a place because of course, Anywhere you've got your, your manicores and your, uh, magic hippos and everything else frolicking together is a giant source of potential magic that, uh, the bad guys would want to exploit. Or maybe, you know, it turns out, you know, Shadowrun style, Bigfoot was actually playing you and Bigfoot's got a big plan to use the accumulated magic of all these animals to like, uh, ghost dance the world and destroy civilization and knock everything back down to, you know, Cro-Magnon times when man was just uh, the animal with the biggest head. Well, that's always a big cliche, of course, when uh, Bigfoot betrays the group. And once once we hit a big cliche like that, it's time for us to get out and hit the uh, segment that lies on the other side. <music> the 
the second edition of Mutant City Blues. By Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future, where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrane store. The whir of the projector and the chill in the air tell us that we're in the Cinema Hut, but just not any old Cinema Hut, but we're rejoining now part six of our Horror Essentials uh, Cinema Hut series. So uh, last week, as you'll recall, we uh, were diving into the uh, coming of the 60s and the uh, shift from science horror to the irrational. And in our uh, segment uh, leading up to the 60s, uh, tackling the 60s, we got as far as the middle of 1960. Uh, that shows you right there what a key important year for horror 1960 was. And now we're going to talk about uh, possibly the grandpappy of them all, arguably the most influential horror film of all time. There are a few other contenders for that, but I, I think this is a pretty good argument just to say that it's, it's in the conversation. Let's put it's it that in the way. conversation uh, is psycho from 1960 by Alfred Hitchcock, which blends two foundational elements of horror, or it takes an older element of horror, the Gothic with the strange building up on the, up on the rise, the uh, mysterious mad female relative uh, stowed away and then brings it into the modern day and is really the first slasher film. And that's psycho of course, from 1960 by Alfred Hitchcock. We've moved away from the sort of journeyman uh, directors who were handling science horror in the fifties to one of the Titans of uh, cinema, uh, horror or otherwise. And it's a very strange, disjunctive movie that depends uh, as much on narrative surprise and throwing uh, structural expectations out the window. There are moments of stylistic bravura. There are moments that are deliberately disjunctively and eerily flat and uh, unsatisfying for a reason and on purpose. And of course, uh, there are uh, great performances, uh, Janet Lee as the uh, person who checks into the wrong hotel. And of course, Anthony Perkins as, as Norman Bates. Mild-mannered hotelier, Norman Bates. Mild-mannered hotelier. Taxidermy enthusiast. Yes. <laughs> and problem child, uh, Norman Bates. Yeah, um, Perkins is, I mean, what can you say about Psycho? It's, it's literally like trying to talk about the searchers. It's just superlative after superlative after superlative. It's an amazing, even for Hitchcock, it's a great movie. You, you almost feel like Hitchcock, with most Hitchcock movies, you feel like Hitchcock is absolutely a thousand percent in control of everything. With Psycho, again, because I think of that breaking of narrative and the deliberate flatness and some of the other, again, very deliberately instilled unevenness in the film. You have the sense, which is probably an illusion that even for Hitch, this is a little bit of a bridge too far that he's reaching even for him, just that one step higher, whatever's one step higher than Alfred Hitchcock, which is nothing to get to psycho psycho in a, in a career that is got probably a dozen five-star apocalyptically pinnacle movies. Psycho may be the best or one of the best. What do you, I mean, it's just an astonishing thing. And then so much of it does depend on Anthony Perkins. But if you've seen Anthony Perkins and literally anything else, if whatever Hitchcock's traditional bullying and ignoring method worked like a charm on him in this, as, as other directors did not necessarily grab out of Anthony Perkins, who's not a terrible actor, but in this, he's, he, he transcends himself. It's also the perfect pairing of actor and, and role. Uh, mm. You also have to mention the score by Bernard Herrmann, one of the great yes. all-time uh, horror scores, and the 
uh, cultural footprint of this film was like it's still it's still shocking to watch now, even if you kind of know what's going to happen. But at the time, it just utterly blew people's minds. It was like a neutron bomb on cinema. Yes, and uh, and there are people today who still are afraid to watch any Hitchcock movie because they think all of his movies are horror movies. But he only made two of them. We're going to talk about yeah. the other one real soon. Yeah. yeah, and who? How mad must Michael Powell be? who makes the other first slasher film, the other half of what becomes the slasher film comes out of Peeping Tom, also 1960, and he makes it the same year as Psycho. So in many ways, I think a, I don't want to say superior, but I, I think definitely it has, it does so many other things that Psycho doesn't try to do. And it does them so well that in any other year with any other competition, we would be talking about how Peeping Tom rewrote a genre and instead peeping Tom is, Hey, that's funny. You know what else came out in 1960 peeping Tom? Uh, it's a movie about a, a killer, a serial killer of, of women and the camera very aggressively takes his viewpoint as its viewpoint. The killer played by the sweaty and, uh, and nebbishy Carl Bohm, which is to say realistically, like all serial killers is just sort of almost like the, the human skin on the camera as, as, as you move it through, uh, the, the depraved and bad things, uh, that, uh, the, the character does. It's, it's that sort of, you know, uh, look behind the mask from Halloween. That is direct descendant of, uh, Peeping Tom. And it's also a very powerful movie. And I think, uh, because it cares about the characters in, in a weird sense, it, it cares about all the people around Carl Baum because he has to seem pitiful compared to them and different compared to them. So they're, sketched out, I think, more thoroughly and more humanistically than any of the characters in Psycho are, which is, you know, another interesting uh, a riff on, on the topic. Uh, Peeping Tom is, I just don't feel like it gets a fair shake because look at it. It's next to Psycho. How could it possibly? Well, Michael Powell is another uh, director who has an incredible filmography behind him, another titan of cinema. But unlike Hitchcock, who makes uh, Psycho and it is considered yet another career pinnacle for him, Peeping Tom destroys michael powell's career and it is it is not a big hit uh people hate it <laughs> they revile yeah. and tom for precisely the reasons that you specify which is that it is a much more psychologically realistic look at a genuinely creepy serial killer without any of the gothic trappings or theatrical flourishes uh and it puts you in the shoes of the killer in a creepy greasy way that you don't want to be oh no, you do not even more so than <laughs> You know, when the 70, 70s comes along and the slasher film is being churned out in the zillions, there's lots of POV slasher killers. It's always uncomfortable, but here it's just nasty and, and greasy and unpleasant. And the, the real uh, genuine psychological uh, awfulness of serial killing is very much on display. And the voyeurism of voyeurism, of course, is part of Psycho. It's part of all of Hitchcock, but it's really there's a, a greasy coating on peeping Tom that is part of its brilliance and also a part of why it is rejected. And, and as you suggest relatively forgotten um, now it should be my turn to throw the next couple of films. We're going to need you to throw them, Ken, because I, uh, uh, the innocence from 1961 by Jack Clayton, it's uh, uh, based on Henry James turn of the screw. And I, uh, remember watching it but that's about it I, this did not really uh, resonate with me so you're gonna have to sing its praises well as you say it's based on turn of the screw it's another one of the great tradition of british ghost movies where the studio wanted ghosts and the director didn't and so there is a degree to which he was telling all of the actors to act as though there weren't any ghosts and they were just having a mental breakdown and then the actors individually often decided uh, no, I've read the novel. There's a ghost. I'm going to act like there's a ghost and just not tell the director. And so you get this sort of very layered, weird, and uh, entirely unintentional, I guess, Jamesian production out of it. And I'm not the world's biggest Henry James fan by a long chalk, but Turn of the Screw is a great novel. And this movie, I think, first of all, it's much shorter than reading Turn of the Screw. And also it really captures the sort of psychological question marking that James deliberately puts in and that later Jamesian scholars try to remove by saying that James didn't want there to be ghosts. James literally wanted that 
question to be the question of the novel. It's the question of the movie. It's, it's a terrific movie. And of course, it's, it's visually, uh, very evocative and it works really well. It's, it's a terrific ghost, uh, movie in a lot of ways. And again, the trouble is that the next movie on my list is the greatest ghost movie of all time, The Haunting, 1963 by Robert Weiss, which is based on an even better novel than Turn of the Screw. It's based on Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson and, uh, the haunting is again, I would say a pinnacle. It's it, this sort of whatever's in the water in the early 1960s is producing masterpiece after masterpiece after masterpiece. I don't know necessarily if it's just that the new generation of filmmakers growing up has watched horror. And so it's in their blood in a way that it wasn't for Browning and, and the early uh, directors, but whatever reason, Robert Weiss, who is not, I think one of the legendary talents in cinema, he's not a Hitchcock. He's not even a Michael Powell. He's a, He's a guy who is a, a strong uh, hitter, but his home runs are not uh, universal. He, he'll get you on base, but he's not, doesn't deliver, except when he does, and he does in The Haunting. The Haunting has no visible ghost, but no question is ever in your mind that there is a genuine haunting happening. It's uh, very evocative. There, there's no gore. There is nothing but pure terror. Uh, the sequence in which Eleanor and uh, Theo sit alone in the bed and hear the door rattle and you think, well, how can that be scary? Well, I'm literally popping goosebumps remembering that scene talking about it on this podcast. John DeBont should be tried at the Hague for the remake that he did in 1999, but The Haunting 1963, except no substitutes, it's an amazing film. And it's yet another reason that the Netflix Haunting of Hill House was so disappointing was because it had to be compared to this. And that's that's not a fight I would want, and uh, it's certainly not one that they won. Now, speaking of horror, I'm going to horrify you, Ken, by saying that uh, The Haunting, uh, because it has uses a uh, device of having the uh, inner thoughts of the characters read as voiceover narration, so annoyed me uh, that I stopped watching after 20 minutes. I consider everyone else thinks it's classic world cinema or world horror cinema. I think it's unwatchable. Wow. I mean... First of all, first of all, Robin, as you know, we are brothers. I want to just honor your bravery in saying that in a podcast that other people will listen to. And unlike myself, they will judge you harshly for saying that. I just accept you as you are. That's that's my way. If you're a hard no on uh, on voiceover, on voiceover, not by Scorsese, almost all voiceover fails. And uh, this this fails harder than most. Uh, so if that's a. Uh, a hard no on you. I'm giving you permission to also uh, give a hard no on this. Next, uh, one that we certainly agree on, and that's uh, uh, probably the foremost uh, piece of filmic cosmic horror, uh, The Birds, 1963. Here's Alfred Hitchcock again. And uh, uh, even with some uh, technical effects that half a century later are uh, seeing their age a bit, this is still absolutely terrifying because it is an example of the uh, revenge of nature for no apparent reason. Just uh, suddenly, uh, Tippi Hedren is going to a seaside town. Uh, there's uh, her love interest, Rod Taylor. And then all the birds in the world decide to kill all the people in the world. Just because. Just like you do. That's just a thing. No explanation. No chemicals in the water. And, then, and it's just an opportunity for Hitchcock to, uh, again and again, display his absolute bravura a sense of space and ob objects and people, and in this case, birds uh, right. moving in space. Yeah, it's based on a Daphne du Maurier story, like many great things turn out to be. But the story is, I don't know why, it falls a little flat to me, certainly compared to other du Maurier things. I think because she was so humanist a writer that the notion of something ahuman or inhuman was not in her comfort zone, really. Uh, you could imagine a Lovecraft or somebody else who was all about this. Thomas Ligotti's The Birds would be amazing, is all I'm saying. And uh, the film, I think, is more like that because Hitchcock famously hated everyone. And uh, hatred is the next best thing to apathy when you're making a movie like this. So the sort of cruelty of the story, the direction is very stark. Like you say, it, it exists only to compound menace and terror onto poor Tippi Hedren. It's just a... It, it's an amazing thing, and it's an amazing thing that it manages to pull two hours out of this one concept, that there's there, there's not a second part to it. There's no real twists or turns. It's just, 
Once the birds have started attacking, that's what the movie's about. And he <laughs> the manages birds haven't to finish killing everyone yet. <laughs> right. We're going to keep we're, going. We're still, we still got a town to destroy, but there's no, the, 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 there's no beef plot. There's no sea line. It's just the, the story of birds persecuting Tippy Hendren is a great story. And we're going to watch it for two hours. And that's what Hitch believed. And it works amazingly well. And, and again, you'd think, okay. If it was an 80 minute movie, I'd buy that, that you could have that so tight and amazing, but it's a, it's a proper movie. It, it's, it's, it's long. It's got a list actors, everything else, but it's really just a very simple story. Amazingly well told. You can't call it minimalist, but certainly from a story perspective, it's, it's minimalist. Right. Now, the next item on the agenda is uh, not a great story. Well told. It's not even a film that I'm recommending or <laughs> I think you are either. No, but no, I have not, to mention in it fact. for historical reasons. Uh, and that is Blood Feast from 1963 by Herschel Gordon Lewis. Uh, this is uh, the beginning of the gore film. And it's a, uh, looks like it was made in a trailer park. It's cheap. It's tawdry. It's uh, prurient. It's gross. Even though uh, many of the same effects you will just see on a network television show or, or like the Supernatural uh, these days, you'll see worse things there and think nothing of it. But this is the beginning of a whole a wave of gore films and it does influence stuff that feeds into other films that we will be mentioning uh, later. But even the fact that it was on the Criterion channel, notwithstanding, you can know about this without having to see it unless you're writing a paper on it. This is really just for completists, the gore film and the revenge film. They produce vital parts of cinema or at least vitally vital to understand parts of cinema. I think you can go your whole life happily without ever having watched last house on the left or any of those movies, but blood feast is where it began. And we do have to sort of make a note. And now the opposite of blood feast, Robin, another masterpiece, another amazing film, another movie that uses atmosphere to build terror to a degree that you uh, would almost uh, consider impossible to understand. If you hadn't seen it, Onibaba from 1964 directed by Kaneto Shindo it's a film that takes place in Japan during uh, the wars of the uh, Minamoto versus the guys who didn't like the Minamoto, whoever they are. The time of, uh, of troubles and breakup in the 14th century. And it's told from the point of view of the peasants who are the victims of this monstrous conflict going on around them. And one of the things that the peasants do is they ambush soldiers and shove them into a pit and then they sell their armor. And that's how they live because they can't harvest rice because it's all stolen by the soldiers. So this is the only way that they can, uh, that they can make a living. And it uh, begins with this sort of scavenger life. And then things get worse because there is a interruption into this already fairly unpleasant, uh, family, uh, set. And then, uh, there is a question of whether or not there is a cursed or haunted demon mask. And this, uh, acts as the sort of catalyst for all manner of, of, of breakdown, even in this very rude, very brutalized society. The movie says, no matter how bad you think things are, they can always get worse, especially if you make them worse for yourself. And that's what happens in Obama. But the, the thing that I carry away from it is not just the demon mask, which is great. It's not even the sort of social commentary, which is also great, but just the degree to which Kanito Shindo masters atmospheric horror the the wind through the the unharvested grain is the characters running through the rushes and then yep it's 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 scarier than virtually any special effect you've ever seen in your life just the way that that wind is just keeps it coming and uh the 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 rustling everything it's uh it's um sort of the advanced super max level of I walked with a zombie. The, the, the walk through the sugar cane in that movie uh, is, is powerfully tense and nervous making. You don't know why Onobaba takes that element and blows it up gigantically, but not gigantically in terms of scope, just gigantically in terms of its impact on you. It's a, it's a magnum bullet shot right in your fear cortex for some reason. Right. But it's a, a horror film by stealth, right? It doesn't signal up front that it is uh, going to have supernatural or gothic elements. Indeed, as you suggest, it's uh, it's mostly clear, but not. Uh, you could argue that it's still a naturalistic film. It isn't. There's a curse mask, <laughs> but it's it's doesn't signal itself that way. It's initially a sort of a a hyper stylized but naturalistic 
uh, tale of uh, life in the 14th century in Japan. Uh, sticking uh, with the golden era of J-horror, we come to Kwaidan, from 1964 by Masaki Kobayashi. Uh, this is an anthology film, uh, all by the same director, uh, and they are uh, adaptations of the ghost stories of Lafcadio Hearn, uh, a, a Western writer who took Japanese uh, uh, folklore and ghost stories and uh, uh, wrote a number of uh, anthologies of little short stories. There are four uh, units to, to this one. There's a uh, the classic sort of beer style Someone who you think is alive turns out to be a ghost. There's a Yuki Ona, a uh, malign female ghost who uh, uh, falls for a, a character, and that's uh, that's dangerous. And there's uh, one where a story is told with a modern framing device about looking into a cup of tea and uh, the uh, the dangers thereof. The most famous one is about a blind musician who is called to uh, perform for a court of ghosts and the uh, protective measures uh, that uh, a, a monk uh, undergoes to protect the musician, uh, which involves uh, writing uh, characters over the uh, musician's uh, body. And that is the uh, sort of key iconic visual image from this film. It's in beautiful color. It's shot in scope. Uh, at this point, uh, ghost movies aren't often uh, either in uh, brilliant technicolor or certainly not in cinemascope. Uh, but this one is atmospheric and beautifully visually composed uh, throughout. Yeah, it's a, it's a gorgeous movie. I'm a big fan of Lefkadio Hearn's Quite On, which uh, contains possibly the scariest two pages in English language horror, the story Mugina or the egg is I think what Hearn says it. that's not in this movie, but the source material is Japanese folks, uh, folk tales and the sort of way that Japanese horror takes its own source material and then deliberately runs it through a Western filter and then runs it back out for Japanese home consumption. It's a very interesting phenomenon and it goes back to almost the earliest uh, Japanese uh, horror productions. And then in Kaidan, it really becomes sort of the, the default methodology of Japanese horror. And it's a way in which Japanese horror sort of steps away from purely Japanese affect and story and attempting to add things that are familiar or were known to uh, Kobayashi from Western horror into the mix. And that I think is part of what makes J horror so incredibly powerful, uh, especially once it really comes into its, uh, its silver age in the nineties is that ability to take something that is alien to Western audiences and present it through a lens that they expect the normal through and to see that ability to dislocate is it's something that J horror does that I don't think any other national horror cinema has really mastered. And there's lots of great other national horror cinemas, but this one goes all the way back to quite on. I think that's the first movie that really does that. And speaking of color sense, our last title for our uh, early sixties return to the Gothic is the beginning of another subgenre and something that uh, has uh, where the use of hypersaturated color uh, not only distinguishes that film, but the many other films uh, to follow. And that is the first Giallo film, Blood and Black Lace from 1964. Uh, and Mario Bava is uh, coming back into the fore here, Ken. Uh, the, the Giallo film is one in which a apparently non-supernatural story of uh, murder takes on a weird gothic tins just because the action of it and the way that it's presented is so incredibly outre. Uh, this doesn't have the gore that you'll see enter the giallo later, but it's uh, disturbing in its own way uh, nonetheless. It's got uh, Cameron Mitchell uh, in the lead. Often you'll see a, uh, a C-grade American actor in the lead of <laughs> yeah. uh, these Italian horror films, and Cameron Mitchell is certainly that. Uh, Eva Bartok is the uh, female lead and it's about, uh, to the extent that any of these have a plot, <laughs> this about one anything. Has a series of murders around a fashion house. And that's uh, really all you need to know. And in fact, is probably a more coherent statement about what goes on than you will come away with after the movie. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a visual feast like I think all Bava films are. I don't think he was capable of shooting an ugly frame, even though ugly things happen in a lot of Mario Bava frames. And it is... Very much, it, it obviously spoke very, very powerfully to the next generation of Italian filmmakers. Argento uh, is hugely influenced by uh, Bava and by this film specifically. 
And it uh, is one of those movies that like, you know, whatever you want to say, the first noir was, it creates a whole style of its own. And when you make a movie like this, you are making choices that Mario Bava made uh, in terms of color, color saturation, story disjointedness, lots of things that uh, Bava did as an individual artistic statement in this movie suddenly become the default for the whole genre. And you see that again in American film with, of course, the post-Halloween slasher film that uh, everyone was aping John Carpenter for 20 years. Similar uh, effect here. Everyone aped uh, Mario Bava and who better to ape, really, I guess. Yes, and it won't be the fir- the last uh, Mario Bava film to uh, inject something into the bloodstream of uh, much later films. But it's the last film we're going to talk about uh, this week. Uh, and next week, uh, we're going to get to the late 60s and early 70s as things take a turn for the apocalyptic. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast off the endangered species list by joining beloved Patreon backers exactly like Randy Ship, Ryan Lassiter, Tenant Reed, Andrew Dacey, and Volpine. The plates of Petty Four, the statues on plinths, the subtle couture on display. We're obviously, Robin, in the classiest of huts, the most elegant of huts, the culture hut. And we can barely even believe our luck to have been invited into the culture hut by beloved Patreon backer and cultural maven, Ethan, Mr. E. Schoonover, who wants us, and by us, I suspect he means you, to discourse on Sati's Vexations, the famously vexing piano piece by beloved and uh, familiar to listeners of this podcast, composer Eric Satie, who is both a weird uh, modernist composer and a crazy occult guy. So he is obviously in our sweet spot. Yes, uh, so much so that I've written about him twice uh, because (laughs) uh, he's a figure who spans the belly puck and therefore appears in the Yellow King role-playing game's Paris sequence, uh, but also is still around for the early era of surrealism and therefore make some cameo appearances in dream hounds of Paris. So let's talk about Satie first and then get to vexations. Uh, he was born in 1866. He died in 1925. And the piece, you know, of Satie's, even if you don't think you know, it is a piano piece called gymnopedie number no. one. And if you uh, go to YouTube or Spotify and uh, search for that, Uh, you will hear a theme that appears again and again in recent movies and has been overused to the point now that it's essentially the plangent melancholy equivalent of Carmina Burana or the Ode to Joy. You hear it everywhere. Or or, uh, Paco Bell's Canon in D. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And these early sort of melancholy piano pieces were written early in his career, in his 20s, during the Belle Epoque period. And during that time, he was indeed, as you suggest, involved with the occult. He was a, uh, a Rosicrucian, and he was involved with Josephine Paladin, who we've described in the book and we've given a segment to in the past. 
and he was essentially the chapel master of these uh, occult meetings. He was also uh, frequently found uh, at Edmund Bailly's uh, bookstore. Uh, we did a segment on, on the bookstore as well, and so he was part of the, the ferment of those times. His musical style was uh, Impressionism. He, uh, WC was the number one exponent of that, and he was the number two. And among the things that he uh, wrote at this time were a theme, the Primer Posse Rose and Croix, uh, and the Three Sonneries de la Rose and Croix. Uh, so these are music to be a Rosicrucian by. And uh, he wrote music for Peladon's play, uh, Prince of Byzantium. And uh, he uh, also, during this period, apparently in response to his one sad, failed love affair, uh, he was uh, in love with a, a, a painter uh, named Suzanne Valadon. Apparently, she was quite beautiful. And she uh, wore on her blouse a corsage of carrots and kept a pet goat in her studio. So she was uh, as eccentric. I think that that's a bad combination. <laughs> well, maybe you have the carrots in order to feed the goat. Yeah, but still, I just I feel like that's just a great way to get goat bites. Uh, well, uh, we don't know about that. But apparently, Satie was head over heels in love with her. Uh, the affair went on for six months, and then she dumped him for a banker. And apparently that was his only romantic attachment for the rest of his life. Uh, and then he went on, in response to that, to write The Vexations, which is uh, basically it's a minute plus of music, which is meant to be played 840 times in sequence. And you uh, can find one on Spotify, which comes clocks in at 14 hours. And this piece was uh, not among his most famous works uh, during his lifetime. I guess sat in a drawer or whatever and was kind of unknown until the uh, early 60s when an acquaintance of his showed it to the uh, experimental composer John Cage. And it was right up Cage's alley. He first came across it in 1949 and brought it back into the cultural bloodstream in 1963 when he had a performance in a New York cafe uh, with a team of 11 other pianists so they could spell each other off. And one of them was John Cale, uh, soon to be a member of the Velvet Underground. So if you've ever suffered from the John Cage, John Cale confusion, there's a good reason for that. They intermingled through the mystical power of Satie's vexations. They blended up. Yeah. And if you listen to it, especially you listen to it repeated again and again, you go, oh, look, there's Philip Glass's entire career except 60 years early and wisely unpublished and, and glass has, uh, you know, paid overt homage to Sati. He's obviously, you know, working in that uh, tradition. So the reason that this uh, is seen to have a mystical aspect is not just the Christian angle, but playing it, especially if uh, one person plays it as people started to do as sort of a, a, uh, incredible marathon act. And the idea of course, is that if you are playing it live, that no two versions of this are ever exactly the same. And in fact, Sati gives you instructions on which version to play in which way. So he says that uh, the 11th time you play it, you're supposed to arm yourself with clairvoyance. And on the 39th time, you're supposed to open your head. Um, and allegedly, pianists say that this little piece of elusive music is impossible to memorize, that you have to uh, sheet read it as you play, uh, which is another cool little... Uh, sort of mystical uh, detail, but playing the same minute plus of music 840 times over for uh, anywhere from 14 to 24 hours uh, can be wearying. And some people have reported, there's a 2013 New Yorker article, which is uh, what Ethan found to show us. And uh, this is an article by Sam Sweet. And he quotes a Australian uh, pianist as uh, saying that he had to abandon it partway through because he was being overtaken by evil thoughts and noticed strange creatures emerging uh, from the sheet music. Uh, and this is entirely uh, plausible, uh, we can say on this podcast, because uh, Sati had a number of friends who had weird stuff happen to him. He was a friend of Tristan Zara's a little later, and Zara, of course, notoriously lived in a closet in his apartment in Zurich for a year because a strange discarnate entity was occupying the main space of his uh, apartment. But I think probably the purpose of the, the vexations was as a psychic shield against the influence of uh, the king in yellow. Uh, because if you bend your mind in the more benign, uh, broken-hearted way of uh, sati, uh, your mind can, uh, is already pre-bent and therefore is uh, sort of immunized, as it were, has a little bit 
bit of the DNA of the twist toward reality horror, uh, and therefore it won't be broken. And so uh, Satie, of course, survived uh, that period without uh, uh, being sucked into Carcosa and uh, uh, continued on uh, being friends with two to three generations of uh, the French culturate. Yeah, the... um we know, for example, that the King in Yellow does approach you through music. We see this in, in the Court of the Dragon, where the disharmonic uh, playing of the organ is the first thing that awakens our narrator to the uh, presence of the king. Uh, we, we sense it in the yellow sign with the music playing next door. That's one of the ways that the king approaches you, is in uh, disharmonic music. And this music is super disharmonic. And interestingly, Sati notates it using enharmonic spellings. So for example, uh, B flat and C sharp or B sharp and C flat, I forget which it is, are the same note, but how you note them sort of creates its own set of expectations and, and punning in this kind of way, you know, Beethoven does it, other people do it, but this sort of series of un, of unsatisfying tritones basically, uh, that, that never pay off. So it's like listening to the first bars of the Simpsons theme forever. Again, notated in that way to recode and encode them and then played uh, enough times to uh, sort of rewrite your own mental signatures and rhythm. It's like an inoculation. It's uh, it, it, you're taking a little bit of, of key and yellow DNA and you're switching it around uh, with the enharmonic notation and then injecting it into your brain by playing it multiple times. And that's, uh, it, it creates an inoculation against the king in yellow, I feel like. But if you, uh, stop halfway through, like an Australian, or if you are, are doing it with a bunch of buddies, the way that, uh, uh, John Cage did, then, uh, that is just, everyone's getting a little bit of the drug. And as we know, that is a, a great way to open yourself up and, and cause problems later on. So the, the Velvet Underground, uh, speaking of people who had a lot of eccentric friends, to whom bad things happened, uh, maybe turn into a, an unwitting, uh, one hopes it's unwitting, uh, propagation for the King in Yellow. You know, uh, they only sell 500 records, but everyone who buys one, uh, succumbs to eternal despair and, uh, then starts a band. Yes. And so the, then the notion that Sati has, has created this cabalistically significant, uh, piece of music, uh, the number eight, 840, by the way, is Pearl in the Kabbalah. It also, uh, is the same as Canaan. And, uh, Memphis in Egypt. So there is a sense of opposition to the chosen people, right? Canaan is the land that, uh, fought the Israelites when they came out of the desert. Memphis is the capital of the place that held the Israelites in slavery. This is obviously the 840 is, uh, Sati signaling that this is the music of the oppressive king and, uh, that you must ap approach it with, with seriousness and with, as you say, uh, vexation as your goal to 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 thwart to vex the king in yellow, not to welcome him in. Yeah, and there's further evidence that he survived a, a brush uh, with the king in yellow because uh, in his book uh, Memories of an Amnesiac, he said that he lived on only white food. So he ate uh, sugar, grated bones, salt, mildew from fruit, cotton salad, and certain fish without skin. And that seems like uh, an absurd, uh, perhaps even untrue statement until you realize that, of course, that is what you would have to do in order to make sure that nothing yellow entered your diet. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that that was also clearly a part of his uh, inoculation procedure. So if you're doing a dream hands game in the 20s and want to bring in a little bit of king and yellow, he could uh, render you some assistance there. Or, you know, if you're playing yellow king, you could be exactly there for the incident that requires him afterwards to uh, to only eat white food. And on that note, Ken, I think it's time for us to, uh, you know, just uh, pause to nibble on, on a little bit of grated bones and then head on through and see what's waiting for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep 
into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%. To the hard scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt. From the abusive warrens of the internet. To the lonely chambers of every human heart. From the toxic legacy of the Cold War. To the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in... There is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to wend our way up the crickety cobweb stairs, where awaits the consulting occultist in his smoking jacket, alongside beloved Patreon backer Paul Douglas. He wants to know about Michael Scott, the court wizard to the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. So uh, last week, we ended talking about uh, the trailing end of the Holy Roman Empire, but now we're in the 12th century. This is, I imagine, uh, is uh, not only its heyday, but the uh, sort of time that would require a a court magician. Uh, And of course, we need to specify that this Michael Scott is not, as far as we know, the Dunder Mifflin Michael Scott, but only... Uh, has one T in his last name. He became immortal and then was punished by God at having to manage a paper uh, distributor company. Well, there we are. Um, Dante put Michael Scott in hell for uh, pretending to tell the future. So Dante is only a century later, and one might argue that Dante has a uh, axe to grind because, of course, Frederick II is a Hohenstaufen and therefore the opposite of uh he's a ghibelline and so he's tied up in in that italian politics one of his big policies was to try and get italy uh to toe the line his court was in sicily uh so he wasn't up in germany uh staying away from everything he was down in sicily where the action was and he was also down in sicily because that was a center of intellectual ferment uh like toledo in spain being a place where the muslims had conquered sicily for a while they'd been booted out uh, by the Normans, and then Frederick sh- shows up and welcomes Muslim scholars and Jewish scholars uh, to his court to create this uh, intellectual body of of understanding. And one of the key people that he brings in is our buddy Michael Scott, because Michael Scott has made a reputation for himself as a polyglot linguist. He's a master of languages, and he knows Latin, he knows Greek, he knows Arabic, he knows Hebrew, he knows English, because he grew up in England, or possibly in southern Scotland. It's it's that border country. We're not exactly sure where he was born. Uh, the town of Dumfries claims him, and I don't see any reason to argue with them. Uh, he went to the church school in Durham, seems to have been his first education. Uh, he went to the University of Paris, and then on to Toledo in Spain, where he was part of the School of Translators, uh, which was set up by King Alfonso of Castile to translate the great works of uh, science and culture uh, from Arabic into, in this case, Spanish, but also into Latin, so that it could be uh, uh, distributed through, throughout Christendom instead of being held uh, by the Paynim. The Arabs, of course, uh, by this time have been translating Aristotle for the last 400-odd years and have got a fairly substantial and sophisticated body of commentary on Aristotle and uh, scientific texts of their own. All of this is grist for the mill. Maimonides hangs out there in Toledo for a bit. And our buddy Michael Scott works with a uh, Jew named Andrew, who we don't know anything else about. But this guy hooks him up with a lot of core Aristotelian texts, and he uh, translates them. He translates Avicenna. He translates Averroes. He's a big name. And so Frederick brings him in to uh, become his court scholar, translator, astrologer, etc. One of the works of Aristotle that he translates turns out to have been a pseudo work of Aristotle called the Secret Secretorum, uh, in which Aristotle writes to Alexander the Great on advice on magic and uh, how you can tell what's a lucky and healthy uh, cow from an unlucky, unhealthy cow. And you can so, tell that Pseudostotle. Aristotle would not be meddling with that nonsense. Not No, Aristotle had bigger fish to fry. And Aristotle's fried fish, amazing. You, you got to have it. But the art of discerning things by their outward qualities, physiognomy in general, fascinates Michael Scott. And he writes his own book 
on uh, physiognomy uh, called The Book of Physiognomy. Very clever title. People who are carrying water for Michael Scott say that he wasn't really influenced by the secret secretorum, but that's obviously ridiculous. Why wouldn't he be? He writes the Libra Physiognomy around 1209, so he may have uh, been picking up on Aristotle in Paris, or he may have gotten to Toledo before uh, we know that he got there. But uh, the guess is that he may have written it for a royal marriage, possibly even the marriage of Frederick II. And that Frederick II said, that guy who wrote that book about how to pick a wife, that seemed to have worked out for me. Bring him along. And so uh, Michael Scott becomes the court astrologer in uh, Palermo. And uh, there he and uh, Leonardo Fibonacci hang out. And there is an argument that Fibonacci basically derives the Fibonacci sequence by bouncing numeric jokes and guesses off of um, uh, Michael Scott, who, of course, has this vast body of Arabic mathematical lore at his fingertips and can say, oh, that's a good idea, Fibonacci. Have you tried this? And, and he could take a numerical joke. Exactly. And Fibonacci uh, dedicated uh, his book, uh, Liber Abacai, the book of the abacus, uh, to Michael Scott. So it, it's not just they're both in Palermo. We know that they're best buddies. And we have all manner of other guesses as to where uh, Michael Scott scampered off to. He is allegedly the first person to teach Arabic in Oxford, which is probably wrong. Uh, in 1223, he was offered uh, the Bishopric of Cashel in Ireland, which he turned down, saying it was because he didn't know Irish, which given that he knew nine other languages is a bit of a special pleading, I think. <laughs> and then he was uh, offered the Bishop of Canterbury, which he also didn't take because the English uh, bishops of Canterbury didn't want some weird imperial minded foreigner showing up and being uh, their archbishop. So that fell apart. Uh, we don't know when he died. The guess is that he probably died roughly uh, when he was 60 but that's really just, well, most people die when they're 60 in medieval times. Let's just guess that. There is a uh, theory by Sir Walter Scott that he lived for a very long time and died in, in Norway in 1290. Uh, that is, uh, to put it politely, baloney. But Sir Walter Scott did sort of try and rescue Michael Scott's reputation, which, as I may have mentioned, was trashed by Dante and others. Uh, and he was sort of rapidly became a um, a type of the black magician. And he famously used to give dinner parties where he would have demons uh, bring food from the uh, royal courts of France and Spain uh, to serve at his dinner parties. And that was one of his sort of famous parlor tricks. He has writing about how to uh, work with light and shadow. He's uh, very interested in optics. And so a lot of people think maybe he was doing these sort of uh, big stage magic illusions uh, as part of his job at uh, Frederick II's court. We don't really know that, but uh, professional stage magicians who have read uh, Michael Scott or have read redactions of Michael Scott seem to think that there's a, a kindred spirit there. Uh, you can't say that's not the case. And he certainly was a, a voracious polymath interested in all manner of stuff. So uh, he wrote about rainbows and at least reported that there had been as many as four rainbows seen at, at one time in uh, North Africa is the theory. And he may have picked that up from Fibonacci, who spent time in Africa, or from one of the Muslim scholars in Palermo. Or maybe he went to Africa. We don't know. He did go off to the Lipari Islands between Spain or between Sicily and uh, Tunisia. So maybe he just popped over and, and wandered around in the desert uh, where great wisdom is to be found. So if we want to incorporate him into scenarios. Is there uh, something uniquely uh, Michael Scotty that you would point to that uh, you couldn't have John D have? Because, of course, uh, Michael Scott doesn't have the cachet now in, in your average group of gamers' uh, mind. So we want to find something that, that John D would have, for example. So uh, what do we do to foreground the more genre-oriented things that might inspire a scenario? I mean, I think that he, what he brings to the table that D doesn't is the physiognomy the fascination with outer appearance and judging people by what they look like. And in a very benevolent way, that can be your sort of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, I see by your hands that you're a carpenter. Um, and in a bad way, it goes to your Lombroso. I see by your low brow that you're a criminal. But uh, Michael Scott or people who have studied uh, Michael Scott's secret techniques would be able not just 
to uh, instantly tell what someone is like by looking at them. They would also be like super identikit people. They'd be masters of, of face knowledge. They'd be able to, uh, he also did a book on palmistry so they could look at your hand and tell everything about you. That that's their sort of, um, their, their jam is that physiognomy quality. And again, the quality of knowing something about a thing by looking at its physical features, although Scott also talks about smell and, and other uh, signals, you could have uh, sort of the, the good, tradition of Michael Scott, which is about picking good wives and maybe uh, helping out with your, with your diseases. He was uh, a, a doctor in addition to other things. And then the bad Michael Scott's are the sort of instant acquire can track you anywhere. Masters of disguise because they know the precise illusion that they can put a, a, a lump of putty on their face. And suddenly you just don't look like yourself because of physiognomy um, that uh, that's the sort of uh, creepy behavior that uh, bad Michael Scott people can do. Plus demons bringing you food, which is uh, well, we're all sort of there now in the, in the <laughs> pandemic, right? Yes. Yeah, so make, make sure in this, uh, in this time that you tip your demons, tip your demons to reflect the extra trouble and danger uh, they're going to. Yeah. Michael Scott shows up every now and again. Uh, there's a author, a fantasy author named Michael Scott Rohan, who I, I think for obvious reasons was a fan of Michael Scott. Uh, Catherine Kurtz puts him into um, one of her sort of adult contemporary fantasy uh, novels. And he shows up in John Belair's. He's, he's uh, name dropped in uh, the face in the frost. So it's it, Michael Scott is unfairly relegated to the, to the B team, I think by people, but he, he still shows up, not just Sir Walter Scott, but other people bring him up. He's not, he's not the complete zero, uh, that, that a lot of these occultists turn out to be. And, uh, in many ways, I guess he's, you know, almost as famous as, uh, the other guys he hung out with, you know, Fibonacci and whatnot. Oh, and he also taught Roger Bacon, uh, at Oxford. He was one of the guys, sort of a visiting professor who taught Roger Bacon. So if you're a, a, a Roger Bacon stand with the brazen head and the rest of it, uh, Michael Scott taught him everything he knew, which is why Roger Bacon wrote sort of mean things about him in his books. Uh, well, uh, if you want a, a deep cut medieval magician, uh, you've got one right there. Uh, and on that note, I think uh, we can uh, declare this podcast uh, over. But I think, Ken, uh, if I understand correctly, we're trapped in our homes and we'll be doing another podcast mere seven days from today. Indeed we are. And indeed we will. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Save yourself the vexation this podcast disappearance would cause by joining such serenely surreal backers as Derek Yates, Taylor Harless, Gwendolyn Schmidt, Jacob Ansari, and Jamie Twine. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Acquire our reluctant Phoenix design. Oh no, not this again. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.